have a Bible, open to the book of Esther chapter 5. Uh, if you need to use our pew Bible, that's going to be page 384. Esther chapter 5 on page 384 if you're using our pew Bible. There are two scenes that we're going to be looking at in our passage this morning in Esther, and these two scenes display two worldviews that are found throughout the book of Esther. As we learned last week, these two worldviews are really found not just in Esther, but all throughout the Bible. It is the same two worldviews that the Bible continually, from Genesis to Revelation, is contrasting for us. That is a worldview of faith contrasted with a worldview of idolatry. Esther and Mordecai represent a worldview of faith, while Haman rep represents a worldview of idolatry. Now, faith and idolatry can sometimes be hard to distinguish because there's a lot of similarities between the two because at the engine, at the essence of faith and idolatry is this concept of worship. Faith is just a more kind of self-conscious worship, whereas idolatry is oftentimes a much more subconscious worship. You can look at it another way. Faith is just a deliberate form of worship, whereas idolatry is a default form of worship. In other words, idolatry is the thing you're worshiping when you're not thinking about worshiping anything at all. It's just kind of what we do. It's our default mechanism. And whether or not you consider yourself a religious person isn't the issue because as we all know, and we hear this in the church and even by careful thinkers outside of our culture, most notably the author Michael Crichton, of the author of Jurassic Park, who says that worship is everywhere. And, and I don't know if you remember, he got into a lot of hot water in Hollywood when he called environmentalism a form of worship. So from Michael Crichton to... to uh, uh, who's the other guy I'm thinking of? David Foster Wallace, a, a, a phenomenal a an artist in our time, even said that all humanity worships. He wasn't a Christian per se, but the point is that even David Foster Wallace, Michael Crichton, everyone recognizes human beings worship. And by the way, that's just what we do. That's what we were created to do. The word itself, let me, let me unpack that. What worship itself actually means, the term simply means at its core to place a value on something, to acknowledge the importance of something in a way that impacts your life. The old English word, worth-ship, teases out that nuance a little bit more. We get the contemporary word worship from the Old English worship, recognizing that what you worship is just something that you're putting a value, a worth upon in a way that's actually going to make a difference in the way you live. So whether your context is spiritual, like this context might be where we're at a church and you're singing songs and you're raising your hands, at least some of you, you know, uh, uh, you're having fellowship on the palm court, you're just dialed into the Word of God, or your context might be more secular. For example, a TED Talk, where you're listening to music, networking with like-minded people, giving to charitable causes, and listening to ideas that matter. It's about the same kind of thing. Or your context may not be spiritual or secular per se. It just might be recreational. It could be anything. It could be at a sports arena where you are getting involved and you are singing songs and chanting and, and shouting your praise and you're dialed into the game or you're hanging out in the parking lot fellowshipping around the tailgate. You see what I'm getting at is the only thing that changes is the context, the object, and the form but it's the same kind of thing. 
And did you notice I was even using similar things we do? I don't know if you've ever watched. Who watched? Anyone watch a TED Talk here? Those are real popular. I don't, I don't really pay attention to them, but some of you have watched a TED Talk. Do you notice the form is identical to a church? They have a cool band that plays music. They talk about a, a charitable cause you can give money to, and they all kind of mingle about, and then they have someone come up and speak about ideas that matter. Where do you think they got that format from? Hmm. My point simply is this. I'm not trying to bash TED Talks. I enjoy them. My point simply is this. We can't get away from the impulse to worship. Now you think, yeah, about sports, come on, that's totally different. No, come on, you've been, I mean, you've been at a sports game, right? I see guys who are so calm and cool go crazy. Do they still have it at Angel Stadium? What's it called? The monkey guy, the monkey? The rally monkey, do they still have that? Yeah, when they bring out the, do they still have that, right? I mean, I'm not just too old. No? Come on, the rally monkey? Wait, what's it, Don, what's it called? The rally monkey, yeah, when they bring that guy out, everyone goes crazy, and they're singing the praise of the team, they're getting all involved, they're dialed in, they're fellowshipping, talking about stats. What do you think that is, friends? It's the same kind of thing. I don't, we're not going to bring out a monkey, and I don't want you cheering in here. My point is this, the only difference, it's a big, big difference, between a sports game, a TED Talk, and church settings, secular spiritual entertainment, the only changes are the context, the objects, and the forms. But it's the same kind of thing because humans were designed to do that. We were designed to worship. We were designed to place a value on something, to acknowledge the importance of something in a way that impacts the way we live and the way we think about life, okay? So that's what worship fundamentally means. When the Bible talks about the ultimate overarching trajectory of one's life, the Bible is very clear that there's only two things you're going to worship, either the true and living God, or you will worship idols, God replacements. To the degree you worship God, you're going to become like Him, alive, free, wise, gracious, fulfilled. To the degree you worship idols, you're going to become like them, dead, enslaved, foolish, harsh, empty. This truth, this, this, one of these, this truth is one of the core biblical message from the Scriptures. Worship God and be restored. Worship idols and be ruined. But the reality is, Worshiping God can be very hard when God seems so absent from our day-to-day -day lives and God replacements seem so obvious. See, when faith is marginalized and power is prioritized, faith is always going to be a hard sell in a society or a culture like that. Like the people of Esther's day, we can find ourselves caught between these two worldviews, can't we? That big message, a worldview of faith contrasted with a worldview of idolatry, is played out this morning in Esther 5.1 all the way through chapter 8, verse 2. So what we're going to do, this is a lot of stuff here, we're going to look at those two worldviews and their consequences in our lives and then back up and see how God is the great reverser of fortunes. Now, in order to do this, and this is where I'm actually, I told the elders this morning, I'm actually thankful for TV because TV's caught up to the way the Bible tells stories. To, to keep the narratives together, I'm going to jump around. 
So I'm going to jump around from chapter 5 to, to chapter 7 and jump back into the half of chapter 5 through chapter 6 and then jump back into chapter 7. You guys can hang with me because TV now do, does that, right? Fat flash forward and, and memories and cutscenes and all that. So the, the, the TV is finally caught up to the way the Bible tells stories, which is why the biblical stories are so rich but sometimes kind of confusing to follow. Does that make sense? So let's look at the first one. Follow with me as we look at Esther and Mordecai and this worldview of faith Chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and then again, chapter 7. So, we pick up this morning where we left off last week. The three days of fasting have come to an end, and it's time for Esther to go to the king. It's time for Esther to stand up and to step out. Her defining moment is here. Now it's time to follow through. Esther chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 quickly. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that he may do, we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast and es that Esther had prepared, verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, remember, she walks into the king's presence without being summoned. She risks her life. To do this. If you were here last week, we talked about the consequence. If the king does not extend the scepter to grant mercy, she gets executed. You don't come into the presence of the king unless you are summoned. She risks her life because she hasn't been summoned. She made a note, I haven't been called to the king in 30 days. But she presses through her fear and embraces whatever consequence this act of obedience and faith is going to bring her life. Do you notice that Esther displays not merely faith and obedience, but she shows wisdom. She just doesn't blurt out the request in chapter 5, verse 3, right, when he asks her. When the king first asked her, she, she knows that if she just drops this on the king, it could catch him off guard, flat-footed, off balance, and it could ruin the chance of success. She has to be discerning and wise and tactful. So she invites the king and Haman to feasts later today and the next day. Now, just in case you're wondering what's going on, this isn't Esther showing cold feet. She's not chickening out. She's actually doing what's part of a cultural norm. You see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, kind of like contemporary Asian culture, you, you just don't ask for something. That's not how it goes, right? Uh, if you've ever had to deal in international business, and you, you can see the contrast between the Western mind and the Eastern mind, in the West, we're like, just be direct, man. Say what you need to say, negotiate, get it done, boom. 
That is not how the Eastern mind works. That's how, that's how to destroy relationships. You don't just ask for something. You have to make sure that what you're about to ask really wants to be heard by the person who's asking. And, and the king, if he just asks once, that's no big deal. That's part of protocol. That doesn't mean he actually cares. He wants to know what's on her mind. Esther needs to know. The king needs to communicate. He really wants to know what Esther's on, what's on Esther's mind. So she's actually being pretty savvy here. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a cultural dance. Kind of like when I first got married, my wife and I first got married, probably the first two weeks we were home from our honeymoon, Lori asked me, she says, hey, sweetie, can I give you a Pepsi? And I said, no, that's okay. And then 30 minutes later, she noticed I was kind of upset. She said, you, you seem like you've changed. You seem kind of upset. What's going on? I said, where's my Pepsi? You didn't give me a Pepsi. And she said, well, I asked and you said no. I said, yeah, but you asked me one time. <laughs> and she looks at me like, what are you talking about? I says, well, I don't know you really want to get me a Pepsi. You only asked me once. She says, if I didn't want to give you a Pepsi, I wouldn't ask you at all. I said, yeah, but you're supposed to ask a couple times so I know you really want to give me a Pepsi. <laughs> Needless to say, we worked it out, but what was going on? Being from the East, from that kind of poly-Asian culture I come from, you've got to ask a couple times because you're supposed to ask once. You've got to do that. But if you really want to give me a Pepsi, you should say, no, 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 I really want to get you a Pepsi. No, 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 come on, yeah, yeah please let me give you a Pepsi. Okay, you can give me a Pepsi. That's how it works, right? <laughs> Esther's aware of that dynamic. This is a, 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 a Eastern, Near Eastern culture. So the first time the king asked, that doesn't mean anything. That's part of the protocol. She's got to draw him out. She's got to make sure, does Ahasuerus really want to know what's on my mind? So you notice the way Esther plays this out. Ahasuerus asks her a total of three times through our text. Chapter 5, verse 3, the first time. Later at the feast, chapter 5, verse 6. And then finally at the next feast, chapter 7, verse 2. Esther coupled her faith with wisdom of knowledge. She just didn't say, I'm going to have faith in God and just roll the dice and do it. She was, she was discerning and wise and tactful. And friends, in the Christian life, faith is a necessary element, but it's not sufficient to live a godly, virtuous, winsome life as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. In other words, look at what Peter says. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue and virtue with knowledge. And then in a couple of verses, he just piles it on how we're supposed to add to our faith. Paul says to the Galatians that the, 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 the evidence or the fruit of joy and peace and patience is further evidence of this growth in your life. The point is, we are constantly growing as Christians. To be a Christian does not simply mean, yeah, I said a prayer once, and so now I'm a Christian, that's it. No, it means my whole, my emotions, my intellect, my volition, the way I live, the way I steward my time, my, the, the, the physical body God's given me, everything God has given to me, I am using to understand His purposes and plans and trying to execute them well. It is a lifelong transformation. Friends, that's why... Um, we, well, we had that before the COVID thing came up. We had our Disciple Makers class, a year-long curriculum that we designed answering the question, what do people need? If they just became a Christian in their first year or so of being a Christian, what are the things they need to be an effective disciple? So we had classes in there about conflict resolution, because guess what? One or two of you have conflict in your life, right? So we got to serve those one or two. 
You get what I'm saying. There's conflict. we got to deal with that biblically. We had classes on philosophy and apologetics and clear thinking. Why? Friends, in this crazy polarized culture, the world more than ever needs gospel-centered Christians who know how to think well, clearly, critically, and graciously. So we had classes on philosophy and apologetics. We had classes on theology because you've got to be grounded. And so, so we're trying to help this church get equipped, and hopefully by God's grace we can start that up again uh, with our Disciple Makers curriculum real quick. So Esther, back to our text, she has faith to step out, but she also shows the wisdom to do it well. And, and Esther, man, she is a smart woman. Because what does she bait Ahasuerus with? A feast. We've read a few of those. Ahasuerus likes his feasts, and, and Esther says, I have made a feast. In other words, she's used these three days well, hasn't she? She just hasn't been going, man, do I got to do this, Lord? I'm going to, I'm just, uh, what do I do? What do I do? No, she's been thinking about, okay, I need to do this well. I've got to make sure the king wants to hear me. He likes feasts, so that's the way I'm going to butter this guy up. I'm going to put him in a good mood. Let's get a feast going. And did you notice what she says in chapter 5, verse 4? I have prepared past tense. So she, she doesn't even know what the king's going to say, but she's already got a feast ready to go. She doesn't know if her head's going to still be on her shoulders, but she prepared a feast anyway. That's faith with action there. And, and notice because in verse, verse 8 or verse... Uh, Verse 8, notice it becomes future tense, I will prepare a feast. So she says, King, I have prepared a feast. Even though she didn't know what was going to happen when she walked into the presence of the king, she had things in preparation. She was ready to go. Now, I don't know if this is a true story or not. It could be one of these pastoral urban legends, but there's a story about a church in Kansas in the Plainfields during the Dust Bowl period, no rain. And so the pastor called the congregation together and says, we, we need to pray for rain. And so on the day of the prayer meeting, all the farmers and the families, they all showed up and the pastor looked around, he got up to the pulpit and he says, folks, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think there's going to be any rain here today. And they said, well, what are you talking about, pastor? He says, I, I don't think you believe this is going to happen. Reverend, what are you talking about? We all showed up. We're ready to pray for the rain. Pastor looked around and says, then why don't any of you have umbrellas? That's a good point. I think it highlights, friends, there's a difference, isn't there, from believing in God and believing God. You can believe in God, and it doesn't change the way you live. Do you believe God? When you believe God, it actually changes the way you're going to live your life. And as we've seen in Esther, Esther doesn't have maybe the heroic faith of some of the other biblical characters. That, that was a critique I had of Esther, to be really quite honest, right? I wanted to disabuse us of this idea of Esther being this gallant, valiant, godly, heroic woman. She probably was less than that. But what I want to point out is she didn't, the Christian life doesn't require heroic faith. It, it is not the amount of our faith, it is the object in which we put our faith in that matters. And what little faith Esther might have had, she put it in the Lord, and she lived in light of it. And then at this, the second feast, later that afternoon, the king asks in uh, chapter 5, verse 6 back there, he asks for the second time, 
What is it you ask for, Esther? What's your request? After all, it must be pretty important if you're willing to break protocol and and risk your life. So, what is it that you want? She says, it is important, king. And if you favor me, please come to the feast tomorrow that I will prepare. And I just want you and Haman, and at that time, I will make my wish and my request known to you. So, notice what, what Esther has done. She's given Ahasuerus what he likes, another feast. This is great. And she's given Haman what he likes, prestige, recognition, significance. And we'll get into that in the next bit, but let's conclude this scene with Esther. So, I want you to jump to, to chapter 7. So you're seeing, and if you've been with us, you're seeing this faith kind of culminate in action, even though it might cost her a lot. So she says, she goes to the presence of the king, I'm going to make my request, and she delays it by giving him two feasts, and here we are now, chapter 7, ending this up. This is now the next day at the second feast, or the third feast. And so, verse 1, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, this is the second day after what we just read about, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. The king now asks for the third time in two days. She's drawn the king out, and now Esther drops the bomb. Verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my requests. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be, and notice she quotes the the same three things that Haman had, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Jump down to verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Wow. Can you imagine that? I mean, this, this is, this is a, Esther's faith and her obedience has resulted in a great reversal. Haman and his plot to destroy the covenant people of God has been upended. Esther certainly was, right? She was a pivotal instrument in in this great salvation here. But as we learned last week, Esther is just pointing to a greater Savior. At best, what Esther describes or represents for us is this trajectory of life that's willing to have faith and trust in God and worship God in the midst of life's messiness and confusing situations. See, this is the worldview of faith. Faith, friends... Faith is a, 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 let me just give you a working definition of it. Because I know if I ask you what to define faith, what are most people going to say? Oh, Hebrews chapter 11, the assurance of things not seen, the conviction and blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? I don't know. Right? Let's be honest. Everyone goes to Hebrews 11, but functionally speaking, they have no idea what that means. So let me give you a working definition based on what I think Hebrews 11 is trying to communicate. What is faith? Faith, and you've heard this before if you've been here for a couple years, it is the skill or discipline to live your life in alignment with the principles and promises of God as found in Scripture. Let me say that again. I should have put it up on the screen. Faith is a skill or a discipline. What does that mean? It's something you can work on. It's something you can get better at. It's something you have to exercise. It is a skill or discipline to live your life in alignment 
with the principles and promises of God. That is a working definition of what faith is. Esther developed that faith. Esther grew in that faith. She exercised that faith, and we can and should as well. That is the worldview of faith. It's not, faith is not an all or nothing thing. You have it or you don't have it. You grow in it as you exercise it as Esther did here. And we see a great reversal as a result. Okay, let's, let's put a pin in that because we also now need to look at a very different worldview, a very different way of going through the world as we see in Haman. So let's do that. Let's jump back to chapter 5, the middle part of chapter 5. What we're seeing now, is, this is the moment where Esther just walked in front of the king and said, hey, I have a feast for you. Will you join me for the feast? And they said yes. And so now Haman is going home. He leaves after the feast. He says, get Haman quickly. Let's talk. They had this little feast, and Haman's going home. No doubts in high spirit, probably because of the alcohol, but also because of the, the significance, the boost to his eagle. E- eagle. His ego, Right? The queen just wants the king and me, how significant I am. But as soon as he sees Mordecai, we'll read this in a little bit, but in verse 9, as soon as he sees Mordecai, his joy and gladness gets replaced with fury and wrath. And we'll read this as well, but I'm going to put it on your radar to notice it. Because then later in verse 13, Haman says, it doesn't matter, everything I have means nothing so long as Mordecai is alive. Okay, friends, if you're a note-taker, write down chapter 5, verse 9, all the way through to the end of chapter 6. This section of Scripture, it is a case study in idolatry, and we're going to unpack this. A case study of how idolatry drives us and how idolatry ruins us. It is a brilliant expose in the human psyche we're going to see in a moment. This is like gold psychology before psychology wouldn't come in for 2,500 more years, but we see it here in the biblical text. And the dark humor of chapter 6, which is probably one of the funniest chapters in the Bible, we can't dive into it, but the dark humor of chapter 6 almost goes to show that God is trying to communicate the futility, the foolishness of living your life as if He does not exist or is in control of all things, and how vain to pursue idols rather than God's purposes. Let me read verses 9 through 13. So this is just right after the queen inviting the king after this feast that afternoon. She says, come back for another feast tomorrow, just you and Haman. Verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I'm invited by her together with the king. Verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Okay. Guys, this is just, you want to understand human nature? You want to understand yourself a little bit? This is just gold right here. What's the first thing you notice in verse 9 of Haman? Notice how fragile 
this guy's ego is. Because he doesn't either get either the respect or fear from Mordecai, Haman's mood switches in the extreme. That's the dangers of idols in our heart. If they get stroked, we feel good. If they get challenged, we get angry. That's exactly what happened to Haman. So the question is, what's Haman's idol? What's Haman's real God that he's worshiping in his heart? What is the sun that the life of Haman orbits around? You know what I think it is? Respect. Significance. More to the point, being seen as significant. What is the thing that more than anything Haman worships? Being significant and respected as such. So when Mordecai wouldn't acknowledge or stroke that idol, either by giving him the respect he wants or trembling in fear before him, Haman's internal world just collapsed. Friends, that's what idols do in our hearts. They pull our emotional strings like crazy. So if you live for people's approval, by the way, who would Haman say is his king? Ahasuerus. But who really is his king? His significance. So if you live for approval and you get it, how are you going to be? You're going to feel great. Wow, that's awesome. But if you don't get people's approval, what's your mood like? Right? And by the way, doesn't this also play out to our interpersonal relationships? If you, I'm looking at Will and Kendall, I love these two. If you give me approval, guess what? I'm going to want to hang out with them, right? But if Les and Linda, they don't approve of me, I'm not going to hang out with them, am I? Why? Because you give me what I want and you challenge me. You see how idols affect the way we live. So what does Haman do next? Guys, he does what we do. His idol, I want to kick something down, right? But okay, you you get it. His idol gets kicked down. And he's all mad. My idol got kicked down. What's he do? He does what we does. He does what we does. He does what we do. Look at verse 10. What's going on? He called all his friends over. He calls his wife over. He's going home to prop up his fragile ego with all his accomplishments. Look at verse 10. So he called his friends and his wife, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. I got so much money. Oh, look at all my sons strapping and strong, all the promotions. What's he doing? He's propping up his fragile ego that Mordecai just kicked over. We do the same things. Friends, can I just tell you, when you get your sense of self or your your sense of identity or acceptance or value or approval, from anything other than what Jesus Christ and the gospel gives to you, you will have a very fragile ego that requires a lot of emotional maintenance. And that's so sad because the gift of emotions that God gives to us of compassion and care and rejoicing with others, we spend it all on on either propping up our idols or protecting them. And we've been bad stewards of emotions that God's given us because we're consumed with, hey, don't, don't knock my idol over or propping it up. Friends, if your identity comes from your job, what will you do when you get laid off? If your sense of value comes from being a mom, what will you do when the kids grow up and go away? 
If your confidence comes from, from, you know, your youth and your handsome, rugged, good looks or your beauty, what will you do when you get older and wider and grayer? Friends, to the degree that you put your sense of self and identity and value in the things of this world, your hopes and dreams, to that degree, they will slip away because the things of this world inevitably slip away. Are you spending your time propping up idols or protecting your idols? Think about it. Don't, don't, don't just look at Haman and go, well, he's just some pagan Persian fool. Of course, I'm not that way. I'm a Christian. But Haman would say, my king is a Hashuerus, but who was his real king? That idol in his heart to be significant and make sure you all know he's significant. And everyone who fed that idol, who stroked that idol, he liked them. And anyone who challenged them, he hated them. This is a picture of us. Are we spending our energies propping up idols and protecting them? That's why I love Christ. That's why I love investing my life in Him because you know what? He doesn't need me to prop Him up and He certainly doesn't need me to protect Him. And when my identity is rooted in Him, I don't got to do the same. And so when someone criticizes me or praises me, it doesn't give me an overinflated ego nor crush me because you know what? It doesn't really matter. My identity, my value is not rooted in whether or not people like me. It's rooted in the fact that Christ died for me because He loves me. I don't ever have to prop that up. I don't ever have to protect that. How do you know, though? How do you know? Am I propping up idols and, and, and trying to protect them and not living for the one true God? How do I know? God has been gracious, and He's given you an indication that you can find out today, and we see it in our text. We see it in verse 9. We see it in verse 13. Did you see how Haman goes from joy to anger? recounting all his splendor to life is meaningless. The text is telling us. You see, Haman's joy and his anger are simply outward manifestation of his heart idolatries. And so here's the way we can tell whether we're worshiping the one true God or not. What are your joys and angers tied into? I'm not saying all joy and all anger is, a, is an expression of idolatry, but they are indications that that thing that's so important that brings you joy, if you're not careful, can become an idol you worship. That thing that brings you anger and just frustrates you, if you're not careful, that can reveal an idol in your heart. In other words, our, emotion, our strong emotions can indicate for us, am I loving a good thing too much by making it an ultimate thing? Does that make sense? Let's get back to our text. I wish I could unpack more, but let's get back here. It actually gets worse because how does Haman's family and friends help in the situation? Look at verse 14. Verse 14. So, so he's talking about this, and then he says, but none of this matters. It all doesn't matter if Mordecai's still around. First of all, did, did they… Well, let me just read it. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits high, a really tall thing, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then joyfully go with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So how did they counsel him? How did they counsel him? Did they help him realize he was looking for significance in all the wrong things? No. 
Did they call him to repent of the idolatry in his heart and show how the gospel is the answer to his true significance? Nope. Did they tell him that his rage, his uncontrollable rage, was an opportunity to trace back in his heart to find the things that drive him? Nope. What did they do? They just fed another idol. Do you see that? You go show Mordecai who is really powerful. Haman, if you can't feel significant, then why don't you feel powerful? They just took an idol out of his heart that was no longer working for him, that was no longer bringing him pleasure, and what did they do? They just put another idol right in there, one that works for him, without calling him to repentance, without calling him to examine what was going on. Friends, can I say this? This is like, we do a lot of counseling in this church. Let me give, and, and I think the going rate, not at our church, but outside is like $175 an hour. So, so let me give you a $175 tip right now. And I realize some of you are seeing therapists, so, so you know, this is, this is good. As we're seeing in Scripture, any therapy, any model of change that does not have repentance as the engine, at best, is only going to take a, an idol that no longer works for you out of your heart and find another one that can replace it. Any kind of model of change or therapy that does not have repentance to turn from sin to the one true living God as its engine, at best, can only replace a broken idol with one that's going to work. And you might think, oh, I'm fixed, great, because now I, I don't need your approval. Who are you? I'm better than you all. Oh, great, so now I'm not sucking up to approval. Now I'm full of self-righteous pride. Oh, I'm much better, aren't I? But isn't that how we fix ourselves so often? Rather than recognizing, I'm just worshiping the wrong, I'm, I'm worshiping God replacements. So his family was no help. <laughs> they should have taken our care and discipleship class on Wednesday nights that Jesus is teaching. They would have gone a whole different direction with the counsel they gave him. They failed him. And so the next morning, back to our text, chapter 6, we're kind of moving into chapter 6. The next morning, Haman goes to the king to ask for Mordecai's head, but what Haman doesn't realize is the king couldn't sleep the night before. So he calls his attendants in and, and reads from the chronicle of memorable deeds. It's kind of like the highlight reel of all the neat things that happened in the empire. And what is the passage that the attendants have to read? Chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, which could have happened years earlier. And the king asks, hey, in chapter 6, verse 3, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young man who attended him said, well, nothing's been done for him. And so the king realizes, because you have to reward loyalty, I didn't do anything for Mordecai. I need to reward him. I need to come up with an idea. Hey, who happens to walk into the court? It's Haman. Haman walks in to ask for the king's head, and the king interrupts him and says, hey, well, wait a minute before you talk. What should the king do for the man whom the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman, as we all do, viewing life through our idols, says to himself, well, who could the king want to honor more than me? This is what the king should do. And in verse 8 through 9, let him wear the king's robe. Let him wear the king's crown. Let him ride on the king's horse and have one of the king's officials march him through the town and extol his greatness. That's what you should do. Notice, by the way, he is talking about all the symbols of power and authority. He wants to be seen right up there as the king. 
This would be treasonous if the king knew Haman was talking about himself because it's grasping to be the king. But Ahasuerus says in another amazing reversal, Haman, that's a great idea. Yes, do it. Do all that you did. Leave nothing out and do it for Mordecai. You know, I mean, can you imagine Haman's face? He's thinking, this is it. I'm going to be at the zenith of my career. Boom. The irony of idolatry is right here, friends. We're seeing it. I mean, it's, it's funny if you got, jump into the text, and sometimes the, we, we miss the, the tragedy in the comedy here. What we're seeing is the irony of idolatry. At best, idols will always fail you, and at worst, they will betray you. At best, they're going to fail and you got to find another one, and you got to find another one. Why? Because we were built to be worshipers, and unless the living and true God is the thing we worship, everything's going to fail necessarily because we weren't made for these things. We were made for Him, and so at best they fail us. At worst, they're going to betray you. If you have an idol that you need people to love you and care for you and serve you, you're going to be a vortex of need. Oh, serve me, love me, approve of me, and guess what you do? You push everyone away. And so the very thing you're desperate for, you are pushing away all the time. That's what idols do. They blind us and they ruin us. And we see that right here. So real quick, we've got to start landing this. We've seen a lifestyle of faith, a worldview of faith, and a worldview of idolatry that's being presented to us in almost a comical way. How do they ultimately end? We're already kind of seeing them, but let's see how they ultimately end. And that's the very last section, this great reversal. Um, Whoops. This great reversal. Okay, well, it's supposed to go to the next side. All right, that's not working. This is why you never put your trust in technology. The great reversal, Esther chapter 7. I want to read from chapter 7, verse 7, through verse 2 of chapter 8, and I want you to see how this plays out. So the king arose in his wrath. Now, now we cut back to after Esther drops the bomb. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went out to the palace garden. He's got to clear his head. What's going on? But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. No duh. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, by the way, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated, chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Friends, there have been a lot of reversals through this text. Have have you noticed them? Esther could die. She finds favor. Mordecai, the lowly servant, is exalted on high. Haman, who's highly honored, becomes humiliated. The gallows that Haman built for Mordecai are used on him himself. himself. What's, what's going on here? This is one of those great biblical gospel themes all through the Scripture, that God is the great reverser of fortunes, that the weak will be made strong, 
that the poor will be made rich, that the outcast is brought in, that the lowly are exalted, the sinner made a saint, the foe becomes a friend, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead live. He is the reverser of fortunes. He's not just the God of great reversals of 5th century B.C. Persians, but of 21st century Americans. Not just people in general, but you and I. When we recognize it, nothing will satisfy us like worshiping the one true and living God, and we turn our backs on God replacements. This theme exists that, that, that God can, does, and delights to turn things around, and we see it beautifully, crystal clear in this end section where Haman is, he's executed. And the king gives Mordecai the signet ring, showing that now Mordecai is second in command. Esther and Mordecai's ethnicity is made known. The people of God are now seen and recognized. The crisis of the hour, that the crisis that is presented to us in Esther has now passed. But the danger is not yet over. You see, Esther's role as mediator and Mordecai being exalted to the right hand of the king has dramatically changed the situations for the people of God, but there is still a fight that is coming. Victory may be ensured, but there's still battles to be fought. We'll get into that a little bit. We'll get into that next week. The point is that God is the reverser of fortunes for all those who will trust in Him. Friends, and regardless of where you're at, how crazy it might be, how, how outlandish obedience to God might sound, even how hard it might be, He can and He does and He delights to turn things around for His people. The cross, the very symbol of the Christian faith, epitomizes this reality. It was a tool of torture and cruelty and death so redeemed by Jesus dying upon it that nobody in our society associates the cross with those things. They look at it as a symbol of hope and life, or at the very least, nice jewelry. Friends, nobody looks at the cross today and shudders with fear. No one would have looked at the cross and been filled with hope. That just goes to show how God is the reverser of fortunes because of what He does. Honestly, when we read this, it seems easy. Right? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. But it's a lot harder for our lives. And part of it is because we're not reading as carefully as we should. Friends, do you realize what has been three weeks for us has been nine years for Mordecai and Esther? That's why those time markers are littered throughout the text. Chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 7 are a couple of them. Nine years. We've just read in three weeks what was nine years of their lives. Nine years of preparation for two days of action that turned the world upside down. Friends, in the big story of humanity, the Bible tells us there, there are centuries of silence. And then there was this birth. But even after that, there was three more decades of silence and actually just kind of mundane stuff. Being a carpenter, hammering nails, sanding down wood, taking orders, obscurity. And then three years of amazing ministry, followed by three hours of agonizing death upon a cross, and the world was turned upside down. God reverses the fortunes of His people. It's not always in the way we want or in the timeline we would desire, but He always do it, does it. Friends, you might be in that nine-year preparatory period. 
The question Esther makes us answer is, how will we navigate that time when we're waiting for the reversal of fortunes? Will it be a trajectory and a worldview of faith, as hard as that might be? Maybe a short-term loss, but a long-term gain, or a worldview of idolatry, which is a, certainly a short-term gain, but a long-term loss. How do we know the two? Well, this text helps us realize every day we're feeling those emotions. Does your joy, does your gladness surround around? Does, does it surround around hearing the Word of God and seeing God working in the lives of His people and advancing His purposes forward? Good. Do you grieve over sin in your life and the way sin is ruining the lives of people around you, the, the person in the pew next to you? Good. Does your, does your life orbit around the glory of God? Is the sun of your life the glory of God? Good. But friends, if your joy, if your grief, if your life is orbiting just yourself, that's not good. But what Esther's trying to show us that even in the midst of that, he's the God of great reversals. We can change. And that's the great hope of the gospel. We can always change. We don't know how bad it off was for Haman, but there was moments where Haman could have changed and didn't. Mordecai and Esther could change and did. Will you have a worldview of faith or a worldview of idolatry? Will God be your God or God replacements? Esther wants to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing, comical text, tragic, yet showing us in stark contrast there's really only two ways to live with us bowing our knees in allegiance to you as our king or bowing our knees in allegiance to false kings and idols in our hearts. Father, would you be so kind as to deliver us from delusion, to make us see our need, and to remember that you do and you delight, you delight to honor those who trust in you. Father, this is good news, the good news of the gospel. We help pray, Lord, that it would continue to transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.